Please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 4. The Gospel of Mark chapter 4. And our text for this Lord's Day is verses 12 to 20. I'm sorry, verse 13 to 20. Mark chapter 4, verses 13 to 20. Last week, we looked at the introduction to the parable of the sower as we considered how it serves as a paradigm, kind of a template for all the parables of the Lord. And we explained that the secret or mystery of the parable that was revealed to the disciples that the key to that mystery is bound up in the person and work of Christ. He is the interpretive key that unlocks the parables and indeed all of the word of God to our understanding. And this Lord's Day, we will look at the first three soils on which the word falls. And then next week, Lord willing, we will delve in with greater depth to consider what is the receptive hearer and how to be a receptive hearer. Thus says the word of God, and he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred, thus the reading of God's word. Well, the overarching historical and theological context of this parable is the kingdom of God. This is a parable of the kingdom. In the first century, the question that really captivated the Jewish mind was when the kingdom of God should come, what it would look like when it came, and how it should come. The average Jew expected the Messiah to establish a kingdom that would appear in a blaze of glory, a kingdom introduced through radical, violent, and cosmic upheaval, a kingdom that would come all at once in one major installment. They thought it would quite literally be like Daniel described 
in chapter 2 of his book like a great boulder that falls from heaven and crushes the nations of this world. They thought the coming of the kingdom would mean the sudden and total destruction of all the goyim, the nations, the Gentile nations, with all their idolatrous inhabitants. But Jesus comes offering salvation, according to Mark, to categorical sinners and social outcasts. They thought Messiah should come conquering with a sword. But Jesus comes with no sword, just seed, just a message, just words. And on those words, he hanged the entire basis and extension of his kingdom. And to make matters worse, not only does the kingdom come not like a military conqueror, but like a farmer sowing seed, but much of that seed is apparently wasted because the, the soil is not fit to receive it and can't sustain it. Well, the message of this parable was about as politically incorrect as a person could get. It flies in the face of all the false assumptions and expectations that pervaded at the time. But you see, the Messiah would not allow himself to be created after the image of man. Rather, he came to recreate men in the image of himself. And further, he compounds the scandal of his message by redefining the boundaries of his kingdom. The Jews were very familiar with this distinction between insiders and outsiders. Christ alludes to that in verse 11 when he mentions those who are outside to whom he speaks in parables, outsiders. You see, he had already begun to redefine these categories at the end of chapter 3 when he asked, who is my mother and my brother? Those who hear and keep the word of God, they are my mother and my brother and my sister. They are the insiders, the ones who hear him the ones who do the will of his Father in heaven. The Jews thought the insiders were only the devout observers of Torah laws. These were, of course, the Pharisees and their scribes, and just maybe the Sadducees and Zealots and Essenes. The outsiders were the non-observant Jews, along with the Gentiles. These were called the Am Ha'aretz. They called them in Hebrew Am Ha'aretz. Literally, the people of the land. It was a term of scorn. It meant earth dwellers, worldlings, as we would call them. But Jesus redefines insiders as those and only those who are committed to himself. The insiders are not defined by Torah's boundary markers like circumcision and kosher laws. They're distinguished by one and only one major trait, faith in his word. 
Verse 20 says, they hear the word, receive it, and bear fruit. Well, the crisis moment of messianic confrontation had come, calling for response and allegiance to the Lord and King. And everybody who doesn't receive him is an outsider to the kingdom. In verse 14, he says, the sower, that's himself, sows the word. Christ is the sower. And the word, the logos, appears eight times in seven verses from verse 14 to 20. And here it means not just the word of God in general, but the message of the kingdom. Logos can be translated message. It refers to the message of the gospel. The parallel statement in Matthew 13, 19 calls it the word or message of the kingdom. The mission and the mission and advancement of the kingdom of God is connected to the progress of the gospel in the world. There's an intimate relationship between the two. The kingdom advances when the gospel is faithfully preached and heard. Hence the word here occurs three times in these verses, the Greek word for here that is, Four times if we include the initial command that prefaces the entire parable in verse 3 where it is translated, listen. Literally in Greek, it's hear. That's an imperative. It's given to all. And thus the primary lesson for us in this parable is best summarized in the words of verse 24. Take heed what you hear and how you hear it. Take heed that what you hear is the incorruptible seed of the true gospel of God. And take heed that the manner in which you hear it is the true hearing that's marked by faith and fruit bearing. As Robert Gundry notes, as the mystery turns out to be that God's rule is established, not by conquest, but by speaking, and that a person participates in God's rule not by joining an army, but by hearing the message in right ways. Well, the Lord is showing who does and who does not belong to his kingdom. Again, he's drawing the line of distinction between insider and outsider. He is showing the different effects that the preached word has on the hearts of people. And he opens up the reasons for that difference. Note that there is nothing deficient in the seed. The seed is the same in every case. All four soils are recipients of the same seed. It's always good seed. It's the living and abiding active word of God, which imparts life and fruitfulness to receptive hearts. The seed must always remain the same. It must remain the uncorrupted message of the gospel. And wherever that message is preached, you can be sure that Christ himself as the risen Lord is the sower who is mounting up on the chariot of his gospel to scatter his seed throughout the world.
But as this seed goes out, there will be different responses. That came as no surprise to Christ. And so here the Lord summarizes a comprehensive catalog of possible responses. Every hearer of the gospel falls into one of these four categories. The first three are non-saving responses. The last represents the only saving response to the gospel. And so note in the first place that the text speaks of the unreceptive hearer. The unreceptive hearer. Verse 4. And it happened as the sower sowed that some seed fell by the wayside and the birds of the air came and devoured it. He gives the interpretation in verse 15. These are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. Well, in the land of Israel in those days, people would typically travel on foot. And when going from point A to point B, and say from one village to another, they would naturally take the shortest, most convenient route possible. And so they would traverse right through the fields rather than going all the way around them. Just like we see the Lord doing with his disciples in Mark 2.23 when it says they pass through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And so many people would do this that pathways would get carved out in the terrain in the midst of those fields. The pathways would be barren of any vegetation. The dirt would be compacted and trampled down. And in fact, in the land of Israel to this day, there are still trails that traverse through the wilderness of Galilee. I've walked some of those trails and many Experts are of the opinion that some of these trails goes, go all the way back to the days of Christ. There are trails, pathways barren of vegetation. And so the farmer who sowed seed through the field would have some seed inadvertently scattered on those pathways. But the soil was hard, impervious, and so the seed would lay exposed on the surface. And birds in that land were numerous and abundant. There were many different species, but they all had a couple of things in common. They all had very keen eyes and a voracious appetite for seeds. And so they'd come along and gobble them up. And Jesus says that this is a picture of the unreceptive heart. It's a hard heart that's stone-cold dead. The enmity of indwelling sin makes it inimical to the word of God. The hardness prevents the penetration of the seed. So there is no impact, no germination, no life, no growth, no fruit. The seed aborts and the soul perishes. Moreover, Satan and his minions do all that is in their power to hinder the influence of the word on the hearts of men. It's as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 
4, 3 to 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He veils the mind. Like a bird, Satan swallows up the seed. Through subtle impressions on the mind, or through manipulating events or prompting other people to intervene. He will distract your thoughts so that you do not reflect on the word long enough to entertain any stirring of affection or pricking of conscience. He's an expert, Satan is, at enticing men to rationalize their sin or to justify themselves or to find any excuse on account of which they convince themselves that they do not have to bow down to Christ as their king. And sadly, this has always been the most common response to the gospel. This happens in the vast majority of cases of those who hear the word of God. No matter how sharply, how earnestly, how convincingly, the word is preached. Unless grace makes it take root, it will never take. The word can be preached in all clarity, with all utterance. It can be proclaimed in the power and unction of the Spirit of God. You can set forth the most weighty truths of life and death. You can paint before men's eyes the glories of heaven and the terrors of hell. You can set forth Jesus Christ before the eyes of their mind clearly as crucified. You can elaborate on his resurrected life and ascended glory. You can extol the wonders of the gospel with the tongue of an angel. You can plead with every incentive to receive the word. You can implore with every motive to escape the result of rejecting it. And in spite of it all, men remain unshaken, unmoved, unchanged, unconvicted, and unconverted. No deep impression is made, and they walk away and forget what they heard. What are these unreceptive hearers like, though, more specifically? Well, some of them are simply not interested in the gospel. They're not interested for one reason or another. J.C. Ryle said, quote, these are they who hear sermons, but pay no attention to them. They go to the place of worship for form or fashion or to appear respectable before men, but they take no interest whatever in the preaching. It seems to them a matter of mere words and names and unintelligible talk. It is neither money nor meat nor drink nor clothes nor company. And as they sit under the sound of it, they are taken up with thinking of other things. It matters nothing whether it is law or gospel, he says. It produces no more effect on them than water on a stone. And at the end, they go away knowing no more than when they came in. End quote. Other hearers are unreceptive, not so much out of disinterest, but because they have been indoctrinated. Myriads are indoctrinated with false religion, 
so that they cannot understand the true teaching of Christ, and they refuse to accept it. But many others are indoctrinated with the false narratives of the mainstream establishment of our day, the political, social, economic, media, and educational establishments. Ever since the Enlightenment, the Christian worldview has been thoroughly assaulted and undermined from Europe to the ends of the earth. The average person now gets their doctrine from the social influences around them and not from the word of God. They no longer believe in a personal absolute being who is God. They reject the idea that they're sinners in need of salvation. They scoff at the reality of the supernatural. The categories of their cognitive framework are incapable of entertaining or receiving the doctrines of the gospel. They've been thoroughly indoctrinated and envenomed against Christianity. And you can preach to them till you're blue in the face, but it's nothing but foolishness to them. Still other hearers are, for lack of a better word, stupefied. They're mentally zombified. They walk around like zombies with deadened minds, with passive, dumbed-down minds that are incapable of engaging ideas in any logical, consistent, or meaningful way. Some are so doped up on drugs, whether legal or illegal, that they can't think deeply enough about the word for it to penetrate them. Others are just so naive that they default to the views of the majority, however untenable those ideas might be. And they're unwilling to even hypothesize an alternative view other than that with which they have been indoctrinated. And you know, sociologists historians, philosophers, and theologians, not to mention psychologists, have all gone into print in recent years claiming and arguing that the powers of critical thinking in America today are at an all-time low. People just outsource their brains to the Google bots. Just wait for the AI to come out and it's going to get even worse. They get their doctrines from social media feeds. They uncritically absorb the talking points of popular media pundits. Zombified. And you know, it's impossible to think right about the gospel if you can't even think in the first place. And people are bombarded. They are oversaturated with ideas. So much that they cannot hear the word of God with ears to hear because in the first place they don't have the self-discipline to cut off the bombardment and pause and internalize the word for even a few moments. Even if they happen to go to church and hear a sermon, their mind is elsewhere and their heart isn't in it. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is warning us that it's no light thing to resist or forget his teaching. The scriptures are full 
of commands, to hear the word of God, to retain it, to remember it, to reflect on it, to meditate on it, to internalize it, to pray over it daily. Ancient rabbis at the time of Christ commonly taught that it was a serious sin to forget a homily or a teaching of scripture. Homily was like the ancient sermon. Our Lord certainly agreed with them on that point. And here he is admonishing us not to be an unreceptive or forgetful hearer of the word. The second category of hearer is the superficial one, the superficial hearer. Mark says, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, some seed fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And what the Lord is describing here is not merely a rocky surface. It's not just dirt mixed with gravel or stones. It's rather something that's pretty common in Israel. It's a top layer of fertile soil that's undergirded by a solid layer of impenetrable bedrock. The soil, therefore, seems good for sowing, but it's shallow underneath the surface. The thin, the thin layer of soil can't sustain sufficient moisture to produce a crop. And the roots of whatever is planted cannot penetrate much below the surface. And so when the sun hits it, the moisture dries up, the plant wilts and withers, and it dies before it matures and bears fruit. Interpretation is given in verses 16 to 17. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they have no root in themselves and so endure only for a time afterward when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. They appear to be true converts for a time, but they fail to persevere in the faith and thus they prove that they were never truly converted to begin with. They stumble, the Lord says, which means literally to have a downfall. They have a downfall. The word is skandalizo in the Greek from where we get our verb scandalize. They become scandalized. It's in the passive voice in the text, which is often used in the Gospels to describe apostasy. Here it means they are tripped up by their trials and they fall away from the faith. They revert to a life of sin, even if they don't abandon their profession of Christianity. And I don't know how many times I've heard someone use this text to claim that a true believer can fall away. But that's a misuse of the text. You can't extrapolate minute points of theology like that from parabolic and allegorical texts, especially when your claim clearly contradicts the rest of the teaching of Scripture. 
1 John 3, 6 puts it quite clearly. Whoever abides in Christ does not practice sin. Whoever sins, speaking there as a predominant pattern of life, whoever sins has not seen him nor known him. And so John is saying that the person who claims to have believed but bears the fruits of the unregenerate has never known Christ in a saving way. It doesn't say he once knew him and then departed from him. It says he has never known him in the first place. True believers will not fall away from the faith because they cannot. The Holy Spirit within them prevents them. And even if they determine to pursue a destructively sinful course, God will intrude and stop them dead in their tracks with discipline and, if necessary, even with severe chastisements. It'll be impossible. Peter said that true believers, 1 Peter 1.5, are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Kept by the power of God, which upholds and sustains our faith. We persevere by faith, but it's the power of God upholding the faith by which we persevere. David said in Psalm 37, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked shall be cut off. It couldn't be clearer. The saints persevere because God preserves them. Every one of them. But superficial hearers of the word are not preserved. They have no promise of preservation. They initially receive the word with gladness, the text says. And initially it's impossible for us as men, as people, to discern the difference between good soil and stony ground hearers. It takes time and trials to make their character known. George Whitfield, who in the 18th century witnessed thousands of professions of faith under his preaching during the Great Awakening, he said this, There are so many stony ground hearers who receive the word with joy that I have determined to suspend my judgment till I know the tree by its fruits. He says, I cannot believe they are converts till I see the fruit brought back. It will never do a sincere soul any harm to thus suspend judgment. Well, he learned from experience that time and trials make manifest what the human eye cannot see. J.C. Ryle explained, these are they on whom preaching produces temporary impressions but no deep, lasting, and abiding effect. They take pleasure in hearing sermons in which the truth is faithfully set forth. 
They can speak with apparent joy and enthusiasm about the sweetness of the gospel and the happiness which they experience in listening to it. They can be moved to tears by the appeals of preachers and talk with apparent earnestness of their own inward conflicts, hopes, struggles, desires, and fears. But unhappily, there is no stability about their religion. There is no real work of the Holy Ghost in their hearts. Their impressions are like Jonah's gourd, which came up in a night and perished in a night. They fade as rapidly as they grow. Some superficial hearers embrace the gospel with false expectations. They wanted to experience the blessing of some alleged promise, but when they failed to get what they wanted, when they wanted, they became disillusioned. Others stumble over the problem of evil. They thought that following Christ would be somewhat analogous to a walk in the park. But when personal hardships or tragedy befalls them, they get mad at God and become so embittered against the dispensations of his sovereign providence that they just reject him altogether. Still others collapse under social pressure. They might be pursuing their career, and they find that true Christianity isn't popular. And far from getting them promoted, it only got them persecuted. Well, the cost of bearing the cross was just too much to pay. Some of them might be Christians for a day. Some might be apparent Christians for many years. But it's not about how we start the race. It's about how we finish the marathon and about whether we finish the marathon. When trials come your way, dear believer, yield your heart to the Lord and beg of him to use your trials to work in you for your good. The furnace of affliction, same furnace, burns up the chaff, but it purifies the gold. And so don't let your trials discourage you, but rather encourage you that your Father in heaven is proving and purifying the genuineness of your faith. Peter said, in this you greatly rejoice, writing to a highly persecuted church. He said this, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so that's the second category of hearer, the superficial one. The third is the entangled hearer. Look at verse 7. Some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Well, the thorns, brambles, bushes, and thistles that infest the land of Israel, they are legion and they are legendary. Many ancient writers wrote about them. One scholar researched this and counted about 115 different kinds. Everybody 
would ever tried to grow something would have readily related to the Lord's analogy here. Verses 18 and 19 give the interpretation. These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Well, these hearers become entangled because they are preoccupied with vanities. For them, the temporal trumps the eternal. They never got the point of Ecclesiastes 1-2, which says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That after spending 12 chapters cataloging how basically every temporal pursuit in life is vanity, a grasping after the wind, as he calls it, the preacher arrives at the one thing that matters most and says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He concludes that all that matters is bearing fruit for eternity. But Solomon, the author of that book, now he got quite entangled for a time, didn't he? Deuteronomy 17, 17. God had warned Israel that when they got a king for themselves, it says, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, for the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Did Solomon obey that? It says, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. The second Chronicles 9.25 tells us that Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And he massed up treasures of gold like no king before him had ever done. 1 Kings 10.21 says, all King Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. I have a bunch of plastic cups in my house with a few glass ones. All his were gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Silver was pretty much worthless to him. What about wives? 1 Kings 11.3. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. Forming alliances with the nations around him in the transaction of uh, establishing the covenant that would be the basis of the alliance between nations, there would be an interchange of princesses. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, especially the concubine thing really makes you scratch your head. 
he got entangled. And thankfully, Ecclesiastes suggests that he came to his senses, but the scripture says also that he only escaped the judgment of God after provoking the wrath of God and barely escaped it by the skin of his teeth. He became entangled because he used his wisdom, the gift of God, in the service of foolish self-promotion and self-indulgence. Oh, when God's blessings and gifts come to us, how important it is to use them as helps rather than hindrances to holiness. One Puritan from the 16th century by the name of Daniel Caudry charged his people bluntly. And he said this, Let others be ambitious for honor, knowledge, wealth, and pleasure, but you are to be covetous, ambitious, and zealous for holiness. Keep a close watch over your heart. Don't let the thorns of earthly indulgences infest the ground and entangle your affections. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22.5, Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. I think he learned that by experience. But he said, He who guards his soul will be far from them. Well, the thorny ground here becomes entangled, verse 19 says, with the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they become, they become entangled with blatant, outright iniquity. It doesn't necessarily refer to things unlawful or inherently sinful. The word cares literally means anxieties or worries. One becomes entangled with anxieties. They can be legitimate things like how to pay the bills, how to keep your checkbook in balance, how to make a little more money, or for young people out there, how to develop those natural gifts and talents you have in the pursuit of some career, how to ensure a good and reputable education for yourself. But when the legitimate endeavor becomes the primary pursuit, you see, the thorns are growing. You start neglecting your Bible to get a little more of those work hours in. You start neglecting it or skipping church to practice more basketball, to study more of that chemistry textbook, to take on more overtime hours or whatever. Beware, for the thorns are growing. And they will choke out the influence of the word of God from your heart if you don't get your face back into the scriptures. They might be growing slowly, but they are growing surely and incrementally. And if you don't attend to the matters of the heart, and if you don't let the word sink in deeply and continually, then before you know it, you'll find your soul entangled and dead. To the things of God and your life will be unfruitful for the mission of the kingdom the church father Chrysostom said when the word is choked it's not merely due to the thorns as such 
but to the negligence of those allowing them to spring up. Negligence. He said there is a way, if there is a will, to hinder evil growth and use even wealth appropriately. For this reason, Jesus warned not of the world, but of the cares of the world. Not of riches as such, but of the deceitfulness of riches. He said, let us not place the blame on what we possess, but on our own corrupt mind. Our sin nature, of course, is capable of producing the thorns of corrupt desires and producing them spontaneously and prolifically and incessantly. Anyone who's ever planted a garden knows that the weeds grow all on their own. They don't require any labor or toil to make them grow. And to the contrary, the whole labor of the endeavor is to keep those weeds from choking out the crop. And so it is in the Christian life. Heart work is hard work. Uprooting the thorns of inordinate affections will cost you the sweat of your spiritual brow. Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. And the thorns, the brambles, the weeds, they have to be plucked up by the roots when they first appear. The longer you let them fester, the harder it gets until it becomes impossible for you to uproot them. When the pleasures of the flesh are enticing you, Ho, oh, cut across them early, or they may gain strength and fester into an enslaving habit. Uproot inordinate desires quickly by the incisive application of the word of God. Go to specific scriptures that speak to those specific desires and pray that God the Holy Spirit may give you a superior pleasure in the word and will of God. Pray for a spiritual appetite for God's word, that his word may satisfy your soul with heavenly manna from above and make you content in his will. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said, the one who has a spiritual taste to the word of God, they find it sweeter than all the pleasures and delights whatsoever. It's the greatest delight to savor the glory of Christ communicated to us through the word. That's how we keep our hearts heavenly oriented rather than earthly entangled. And according to the Lord's parable, the way to replace the thorns is to receive the word as a true and fruitful hearer. To supplant thorny fleshly desires with holy spiritual affections. Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers gave some of the best advice on how this works. He said, such is the grasping tendency of the human heart that it must have something to lay hold of 
and which, if wrested away without the substitution of another, something in its place would leave a void and a vacancy as painful to the mind as hunger is to the natural system. He said the heart must have something to cling to. And then he said, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. But where does this new affection come from? Not from our self-effort. It's birthed in the soul by the Spirit as we look in faith to the one who sows the word in our hearts. And so Chalmers writes, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. He said Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellency of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. He is the sower. He is the one who enables and ensures our fruitfulness. And if we abide in him, as he said, and his words abide in us, he promises that we will bear much fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that you would keep our hearts from being entangled with the thorns and desires of this life. And that you would prevent us, Lord, from being superficial hearers or unreceptive hearers. Oh, Lord, make us truly receptive to your word, to every jot and tittle of it, and help us, Lord, to receive the Christ of the word with all our hearts by the true application of faith. In his name we do pray. Amen.